So I'm going to talk uh, a little bit uh, today about uh, the skill of thinking, uh, the primary skill that we use uh, and seek to develop in practicing with thinking is heedfulness of thinking. So this is a key practice for us in our efforts to awaken. Key practice, very important practice for us in our efforts to awaken, uh, to practice heedfulness of thinking. So we practice heedfulness of thinking, of course, in the meditation. We're noticing when we are engaging in uh, different kinds of thinking. Uh, but what we're asked to do uh, in following the Buddha's design, it's a key aspect of the Buddha's design, what we're asked to do in following the Buddha's design is to be heedful of our thinking, uh, as the teachings say, in all postures, uh, while we're in, in, in endeavoring in our lives, engaging in all activities. Uh, we're asked to uh, be heedful of our thinking throughout the course of our day. So in many ways, it's a, it's a, it's a practice that we practice, quote-unquote, off the cushion. So it was a key practice for the Buddha, as he said, as a bodhisattva, bodhisattva. Uh, bodhisattva is one who strives for awakening. It was a key practice for him uh, and his efforts to strive for awakening. Uh, and it's a key practice for us also as bodhisattvas in our efforts to awake, to be awake. So when we're engaging in thinking, uh, and I'm kind of using the word thinking, you know, there's skillful and unskillful thinking. You know, I'm talking about the kind of thinking that we engage in throughout the course of the day that, uh, uh, for the most part, is not very skillful. Uh, when we're caught in thinking, when we're engaging in thinking, uh, we're not awake. We're not awake. This is what the Buddha said. Uh, the Tibetans say we go into a dream state. The Buddha called that state uh, a state of becoming. That which is becomes something else. The reality of the present moment becomes something else. We enter uh, a thought world. We enter thought worlds, and we live in these thought worlds. Uh, these thought worlds are really the representation of dukkha, or suffering. This is kind of like what suffering looks like. We're in these thought worlds. We're caught in these thought worlds. So even in the meditation, there might have been moments, dare I say, when you went into a thought world, maybe you pulled yourself out of it, maybe it, it didn't, you didn't stay in it for too long, you were thinking about what you had to do later on today, or something that happened three weeks ago, or whatever, uh, or something that you like, or something that you didn't like. Uh, you know, that's in the meditation. During the day, that's happening all the time, right? So this is what we're asked to see, that we're in these thought worlds, uh, we're in these states of becoming, and uh, to see that these are states of dukkha. These are states of dukkha. Uh, so, uh, now the word dukkha is a very tricky word, like a lot of Pali words are, a lot of these concepts. Uh, the traditional translation is suffering, uh, which is okay, but it leads to a lot of misconceptions. Uh, I think when we think of suffering, we tend to think of 
uh, very overwrought emotional states, like we're in a state of anguish or we're in a state of uh, uh, anxiety or worry or despair, etc. So, uh, you know, those are certainly states of dukkha. Uh, but I think it helps to uh, perhaps reconceive our idea of what dukkha is. Because I think that kind of a definition, uh, while useful, uh, I think we're better off. I think we're better off if we can uh, develop a more useful understanding of what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about dukkha. So, if you think about what we're talking about in terms of thought worlds, uh, one of the ways that's important to think about dukkha is that we are cut off from the body, right? We're not aware of the body. We're not in the body, if you will. So you know, the Buddha said, when we range outside of the body, we are in a state, we go into a state of dukkha, right? So uh, we're outside of the body. You know, we're cut off from the body. Uh, it's a state in which we're cut off from the body. And therefore, it's a state in which we're cut off from the heart, right? because the heart is in the body. So we're cut off from the body, and because we're cut off from the body, we're cut off from the heart. So, uh, you know, the heart is another term that we kind of throw around a lot, uh, and, you know, it's very, it's very useful. You know, it's useful to think about these things, and, uh, and it's useful to, and that's why we have Dharma talks, but, it, but it's also useful, you know, I mean, we think about these things in the, ter in the service of exploring. You know, what does it mean uh, when I'm in a state of dukkha? What's that like? Uh, what's the heart? What's the heart? Oh, it sounds good. You know, uh, what's the heart? Uh, and, we, and it's something that we need to know what the heart is. Because uh, if I say to you, well, a state of dukkha is one that you, in which you're cut off from the heart, Oh, well, that doesn't sound so good, but, you know, it, the implications of that aren't as great as when we begin to understand what the heart is, right? What do we, when we begin to really start to understand uh, through our own experience, not intellectual, what it is that we're cut off from, you know? Once we start to see what it is and understand what we're cut off from, then it becomes something that we, uh, you know, really understand uh, in terms of, uh, the uh, the unfortunate nature of that condition. So the heart, you know, the, the word in the Thais use the Pali word is chitta, right? So and 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 what the Thai Ajans would teach, you know, in, in our tradition is that you know the chitta is you know sometimes the word is mind. They use mind. Uh, sometimes the word is heart. Uh, uh, sometimes it's more useful to think of it as the chitta, and it's it's in the body. So it's it's actually something that's in the body, the, the heart. Uh, it's not the physical beating heart, though, right? Because the people get we can get confused with that. I think most people, when they've been around for a while, understand we're not talking about the physical body, but it still tends to be more abstract in terms of the concept of what the heart is. 
and you know, as as the Thai Ajahns would say, it's felt in the chest, right? Somewhere in the middle of the chest uh, is the chitta. It's in the body, and it's something that you can have a felt sense of, right? So that's important to begin to start to understand and to begin to start to apprehend. Uh, so what the heart includes is what's sometimes called the knowing quality. You know, the knowing quality. So this is your place of wisdom, right? This is your place of wisdom. And when we talk about wisdom, we're talking about, you know, or insight, we're talking about the wisdom or insight that ostensibly we're talking about when we talk about insight meditation or the wisdom of the Buddha. Uh, it's, it's not intellectual wisdom. It's not psychological wisdom. It's, it's a transcendent wisdom, okay? It's a transcendent wisdom that understands your human experience, understands uh, what you're doing that's causing you uh, to not make the most of your human experience, understands what it is that you need to do, understands the nature of your human experience. That's all in the heart. It's something that can't really be understood in the mind. So sometimes we use the term transcendent or liberating, it's wisdom that once you begin to uh, connect to it, will liberate you, will free you from, from suffering, will free you from the things that you're doing that are causing you pain and the way that you're living that's causing you pain. That wisdom is in the heart, uh, in this knowing quality. Uh, and then the heart also includes these sublime abidings, uh, these qualities. There's these qualities in the heart of loving kindness, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. These are the qualities that empower action that lead to happiness. Okay. So these, this is this is the heart, right? Again, that perhaps is a is a limited. It is a limited explanation of what the heart is because it's not something that can really be explained, right? So I'm trying to use words to explain something that transcends words. Uh, but it's, it's important to start to understand uh, through your own experience what the heart is and, uh, <clears throat> and, and understand the benefit of, of relying more on the heart and living more from the heart and this capacity that you have and also understanding the great drawbacks of, of not being connected to the heart of not being connected to the heart. Because it's only when you begin to understand that that you'll be able to abandon unskillful thinking. So uh, our practice of heedfulness of thinking includes two components, right? One component is to see when you're caught in thought, to see when you're in a thought world, to uh, to uh, be mindful, if you will, of when you're in a narrative, when you're in a story, when you're caught in some kind of a thought uh, pattern. Uh, and then to discern uh, whether the thinking is unskillful, uh, to discern uh, that the thinking is conducing to suffering. So this is what the Buddha is concerned with, right? 
this is what we're concerned with in being heedful, that the thinking is conducing to suffering. The thinking is conducive to suffering. So that's, that's the, that is the, 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 the crux of the understanding. That's the crux of the understanding. All the rest, the analysis of the thoughts and you know, the history of the thoughts and the content of the thoughts, that's all you know, for therapy and for other disciplines perhaps. What the Buddha is concerned with is, is their thinking, is the thinking conducing to dukkha? That's the practice. The Buddha said famously, I teach suffering in the end of suffering. That's what we're concerned with. This is what's known as appropriate attention, right? This is how you attend appropriately. This is, this is what you have to look at and begin to see if you want to end dukkha. You know, that's what appropriate attention is. You know, looking at things in a certain way. There's many ways that you can look at things. You know? There's many ways that you can look at thoughts. They all are wonderful, but they're not going to, within the confines of the Buddhist teachings, free you from dukkha. Okay? This is very important because you know, what you do in, with your attention you know, is, is you, know, you, have, you have a capacity for attention, but you have to use it wisely. You have to use it wisely. Sometimes it's called wise attention. So we see that there's thinking, and we see that the thinking is uh, conducing to, it's unskillful, it's conducing to suffering. So, uh, you know, we can ask questions, you know, does this lead to suffering? Is this conducing to dukkha? Uh, you know, when, when we're looking at the thinking, we're looking to see uh, the consequences of the thinking in that it conduces to dukkha. Uh, and of course, we're looking to see that it conduces to dukkha. Uh, in the short term, that means while you're engaging in the thinking, you know, if it's about this person and how they're difficult, or that thing that you don't want to do, or that thing that you, you can't wait to do six weeks from now, or the worry about this, or the regret about the past, or or whatever it is, whatever it is, uh, we're asked to discern, to begin to understand that that thinking is bringing about dukkha in the short term when you're doing it, but also it's conditioning further thinking along those same lines that's going to bring about suffering. So you're, you're conditioning your mind in a certain way that is going to, uh, you're conditioning your mind in a certain way so that going forward you're going to think in ways that are going to bring about dukkha and suffering. So uh, this is something that if you keep asking these questions, you begin to understand that. You know, the Buddha said you bend your mind in a certain direction. You bend your mind in a certain direction. 
so what you're doing when you're thinking is, is, is has profound implications, not just for those moments when you're, when you're thinking, but also profound implications going forward in terms of the kind of mind that you're conditioning and the kind of mind that you're conditioning that is conducing to suffering. So, uh, so you can begin to start to see that uh, if you keep asking those questions, but, you know, that understanding is in the heart. You know, that understanding is in the heart. So as you start to ask these questions, uh, you know, you begin to, you know, you ask these questions and you let them reside in the body and reside in the heart, you know. So, you know, we want to get to the heart, but we need to sort of use the heart to some extent to be able to, to deepen our connection to the heart. So, so we ask these questions, uh, which is hard at first because, you know, we're cut off from the heart, and, but we're asked to look at things with the heart and it requires a certain degree of faith. So does this thinking lead to suffering in the short term? Does it lead to suffering in the long term? Uh, I mean, it, another way is, you know, to think about it is, you know, again, because we, we want, we need to understand things in the heart, uh, you know, asking the questions and just letting the questions be in the body. So does this thinking lead to suffering, dukkha? Does it take me out of the body? And does it take me from the heart? Does this thinking take me from the heart? I mean, that's what dukkha is. So is it taking me from the heart? Is it blocking me off from the heart? So again, you know, this, in, this discernment that, you're, that we're moving towards in asking these questions is not intellectual. It's not intellectual. It comes from clear seeing and looking and asking the questions and knowing, knowing in the body, knowing the truth. This is the Dhamma, the truth, knowing it in the body and knowing it in the heart. It comes from looking and asking and knowing again and again and again and again, right? Without waiting, without expecting an answer in the moment, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. You know how insight develops little by slowly over time. So we look, we ask. You know, your job is to look at the thinking, like one person looking at another, and ask the questions: What are the consequences of this thinking? Is this thinking bringing about suffering in the short term? What are the long-term consequences? Is it taking me out of the body? Is it taking me away from the heart? Is it blocking me off from the heart? Is it preventing me from the heart? And these are questions that we ask again and again. So it requires persistence and patience over time, over time. Uh, and if we practice in this way, gradually we develop disenchantment with thinking. So, you know, it requires this practice of heedfulness uh, of thinking it requires staying in the body, you know? Again, you know, these things may seem a little bit paradoxical, but, uh, uh, you know, we're out of the body, so we're training ourselves to stay in the body so we can see the things that we're doing that take us out of the body, if you will. So it requires staying in the body, 
requires staying in the body uh, in all postures, in all activities, as we're endeavoring in our lives. It requires staying in the body. You know, we, of course, call that famously or perhaps infamously natural meditation, you know. So it requires staying in the body, having mindfulness of the body, uh, and having a quality of ease, having a quality of ease in the body. So in my, in my book, I call this the most favorable state, you know, being in the body and having a quality of ease in the body is the most favorable state because it puts you in position to develop understanding, right? So, you know, it's it, in and of itself, it feels good when you're able to stay in the body with ease, but ultimately staying in the body, having a center in the body, a quality of ease is the most favorable state because it puts you in position to understand your experience in this case, to be, you know, and there's other elements of experience that we're asked to understand, but in this case, to be heedful of your thinking. So, you know, and it works, it works the other way around, too. Once you start to practice heedfulness of thinking and you start to see that as you're more and more aware of your thinking and as you ask these questions, which are very important to ask, it's very important to ask these questions and to understand that your thinking is conducing to suffering, you know? Uh, and, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, I need to backtrack a little bit and emphasize this because, you know, the way I was brought up in meditation was, oh, don't worry about thinking, clouds passing through the sky, you know, uh, don't worry about it, just see it, watch the thoughts come and go. It's not what the Buddha taught at all, you know? It's not what the Ajans would teach. You know, they would say, that thinking is dangerous. That always seemed a little harsh to me. You know, that thinking is dangerous. You know, why is it dangerous? Because it's blocking you off from the heart. It could be nothing more dangerous. It could be nothing more dangerous. It's blocking you off from your goodness. It's blocking you off from everything that's the best about you is being compromised by that thinking. Everything that's the best about you, your goodness, your greatest strength as a human being is compromised by that thinking. That sounds dangerous to me. You know, once you begin to understand that, you know, you really become disenchanted with this thinking. You've developed that understanding. So we have to see the thinking and we have to question it. Uh, and there has to be that sense of urgency about it, you know? But at the same time, there has to be composure and ease. So, you know, we're in the body, but there's ease, there's equanimity. We look at that thinking with equanimity. You know? That's why these qualities of concentration are so important, you know. I mean, even as I'm saying this now, there may be a quality of, oh my God, my thinking, it's terrible, it's awful, ah, bah, bah, bah. That's exactly what you don't want to do. You're just creating another narrative. <laughs> it's like you've got to be able to look at that thinking that's causing you dukkha, that's blocking you off from the heart, that's preventing you from making the most of your life. You've got to be able to look at that thinking with poise, you know, you know? with calmness, with space, you know, and not get knocked off your spot by it and, and the implications of it.
that's why we, you, you, we, you know, you <clears throat> gotta bust your butt, as we used to say, uh, you know, in terms of developing your practice. Uh, because this is a practice that you can do, you know? I mean, all these practices that we teach are practices that you can do. You know, if you learn the skill and you develop uh, a certain amount of uh, ability to make effort. So, you know, this heedfulness of thinking is a practice that's very doable. It's something that everybody here can do. Uh, you can be more in the body during the course of your day. You know, I mean, it all starts with that. You have to be more in the body, uh, more centered in the body, with ease, with space, with equanimity. Uh, that's something that you can do. It requires a lot of practice, right? Particularly practice in the sitting and then working to maintain the breath and the body during the course of the day. You know? That just requires dogged persistence, that's all. But everybody can do it. You know, it's not, dare I say, rocket science. You know, be mindful of the breath. The instruction is not, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's not, it's not a complicated instruction. You know, in terms of concentration, be mindful of the breath. Uh, stay in the body. So you can be more in the body. You can be more heedful of your thinking. You can be heedful of your thinking. And this is a practice that, you know, there's no question in my mind that you can do it, you know? I mean, it's, 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 it's a less uh, refined practice than trying to be mindful of dependent origination or the five aggregates and things like that, which require, like, really deep concentration on the level of jhana and you can usually only be accomplished in extended periods of sitting meditation. I mean, this is a practice that the Buddha practiced before he developed those levels of concentration. You know, this is a practice that you can all do. You know, you, know, you can practice, if you develop, you know, some ability to stay in the body with ease during the course of the day, you can be heedful of your thinking as you go throughout the course of your day. Uh, you make a resolve to do that. And uh, in turn, you can be more connected to your heart. You know? you know, if you practice breath meditation in sitting and maintain the breath during the course of the day and maintain body awareness in a state of ease during the course of the day, you'll be more connected to your heart, right? you'll be more connected to your heart. You'll be more in the body and you'll be more connected to your heart. As you maintain the breath and the body during the course of the day, and you notice more and more when you're going into thought worlds which block you off from the heart, you can bring awareness to what you're doing in terms of going into thought worlds or being in thought worlds. You can bring awareness to that. You can see the drawbacks in that. You can, little by slowly, develop disenchantment with those thought worlds and be more in the heart, and be more in the heart. I mean, this is something you can do, you know? This is something you can do. I mean, dare I say, everybody here who's practiced is closer to the heart, you know, in the time since they've practiced, you know? These are the things that the Buddha teaches us to do so that we can be closer to the heart, so that we can be more in the heart, right? So, you know, you can be more connected to your heart. There's no question. There's no question. You know? And, you know, you can be more connected to your heart 
and you have this quality. You know, you have this knowing quality. You have this capacity uh, for loving kindness and compassion and appreciation in the heart. You have this. You have this. You have this goodness in the heart. You have this. You know? Now, the more you start to understand that you have it, the more inclined you become to do the kinds of things that we're talking about doing. Okay? But to know that you have this goodness in the heart, this quality of knowing, of wisdom, these qualities of compassion and loving kindness and appreciation. So you have this potential. You have this potential. This practice is all about your potential. You know, I mean, this is a point that we try to make, is that, you know, because this is another area sort of of, of, of misconception, perhaps, you know, you have this extraordinary potential, but you have to develop it, right? You have to work to developing it. Uh, the practice is a practice of developing the potential of the heart. You know, if you do this, if you develop the potential of the heart, you'll know a greater happiness in this life. You'll know the happiness of the heart. You'll know true happiness.